Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. We are really excited to bring you Kevin Bass, who has a PhD in biochemistry, a master's in immunology, and he's currently finishing his uh, medical degree. Kevin, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Rob. Yeah, so let's, uh, let, let's start this podcast with uh, your story and kind of how you've had this awakening throughout the pandemic. Um, can you start us off with what kind of triggered that? And I think, I want to say like five years ago, uh, around five years ago, around the time I started my PhD and I had extra time, I was on Twitter, uh, I was really into nutrition. And um, I think after doing that for a while and uh, just trying to communicate good nutrition information, I was very idealistic. I thought we could save the world with nutrition, get rid of the obesity epidemic, get rid of heart disease, all that stuff. Uh, I, I actually um, got really uh, sort of disenchanted by a lot of that space because there was a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of misinformation about nutrition. There's all sorts of people who believed that their particular diet was going to save the world and every other diet was bad. Uh, and sometimes groups of people with the exact opposite views thinking the same thing about each other. Uh, and uh, it was very um, demoralizing because I thought, you know, going into nutrition, we're going to, of course, I thought I was very idealistic. I thought we we're going to save the world. But then if everybody's disagreeing, how are we going to get everybody on the same page to, um, to actually, you know, make policy and make things better? So around that time, I actually found uh, Jordan Peterson. I think you've talked to Jordan uh, a few times, Rav. Uh, so Jordan Peterson really influenced me because he said, um, well, like one of his big things was just speak the truth. Uh, speak the truth, uh, live according to the truth. And... Um, and and you won't necessarily, by doing one thing or another, I want to make sure, am I still connected? You won't necessarily, by doing one thing or the other, um, make, your life, make yourself happy. You can't control how happy you are, but you can control how meaningful your life is and whether or not you're living according to the truth. And that was one of the big lessons I took away from uh, Jordan's stuff. So I, at that point, I got really into... Uh, debunking misinformation so i started getting involved in what we call like the diet wars and this is maybe 2017 all the way up through 2020 when covid happened and am i still connected just want to make you sure you still are yeah yeah so so around 2020 when covid happened uh i was trying to finish my phd i had a really difficult project going on uh it turned out that i actually had to switch my product project after two or two and a half years working on it um and then, uh, yeah, it was real rough. And then also we had the pandemic that happened and it like uh, uprooted all of our lives. And, and there were several stressful things that were happening at the same time. And I became a little bit, it's not entirely like, but I think about half of my efforts sort of switched over to trying to debunk. Can I, can I ask about the, um, the, your experience as a PhD student, Kevin? Um, mm -hmm. uh, this is Jay Bhattacharya. So uh, the, 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 uh, it's interesting because like my experience as a PhD student, um, I, one of the things I learned from it is that, uh, that it's very difficult to know in, in complicated areas with any deep certainty that what you know, what you think is true is certainly true. Mm. And very often I would, I would have some thought where I knew, I knew for certain, you know, X, Y, or Z. And then I'd like find some argument by somebody and I'd, and I'd be like, whoa, whoa, I was thinking about that really wrong. I imagine that you must have had some of that kind of experience while you were completing your PhD. Um, some of that. So the, the, the thing that I was really obsessed with going into my PhD was uh, reproducibility and rigor uh, because, you know, I mean, I don't know how it was when you did your PhD. I know you know how academia is, especially like the basic sciences, but in the basic sciences, uh, a lot of it's about just publishing and some of it's unclear exactly how relevant or how important those particular findings are going to be. And also people try to make things uh, more exciting than they really are. Uh, and sometimes uh, they can take the data and try to make it more exciting than it is uh, not necessarily in the most, um, the ways that, are, that match the highest standards. And that was a really big, 
thing for me throughout most of my PhD, but there is kind of some counter arguments to that. We, we get into some of the details about that, but I think the biggest thing I learned was <laughs> the, the most important lesson I definitely learned during my PhD was learning how to pick my battles. So you can make science as perfect as possible, but um, the good can be, the perfect can become the enemy of the good. Now, sometimes you do need to be super meticulous, but you need to figure out what the areas of the particular science are in which you need to be meticulous and what areas are less important for ensuring the rigor of the research. So uh, I know that um, rigor reproducibility is all the rage right now, especially among academics uh, who who may not (laughs) some of which may not do as much uh, actual primary research. Uh, And I and I totally agree. And I think we still have a really long ways as far as reducing waste is concerned. I think like maybe the majority of basic science findings are, are probably wrong. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are some important practical aspects of doing science that uh, I had to learn about and I had to uh, accept as sort of just part of, you know, the way science is done. So, and, and Kevin, so how, how yeah. did, how did that experience inform your interactions in, in the public arena? Like this is something actually, is relatively new to me. Before 2020, I never had, I didn't have a Twitter account. I never actually wrote op-eds. I think I was on TV a couple of times, but only I just published papers. So my audience was other academics. But you were, before 2020, uh, in in public and also trying to, uh, you know, le- learn your trade as a, as, a, as a scientist. How did that your progress in your scientific work and your and your uh, the way that you approached your scientific work, how did that inform and change how you interacted in how you communicated science to the public on Twitter and elsewhere? This is actually kind of fascinating. I've never been asked about this. Um, I think that especially around, especially as I really came to internalize a lot of the basic science training I had before that, I was really, um, I thought, I thought. Uh, before I, that, I was really clinically oriented for obvious reasons, but I came to really appreciate the sort of hypothesis generating plausible nature of a lot of basic science findings and some of the more speculative uh, aspects of that. And, and, and in that respect, I came to appreciate uh, having a little bit more of an open mind. You don't necessarily need to have a perfect a bit of research done in order for it to point you in an interesting direction. And just because somebody's excited about some bit of research and it might not be uh, like completely foolproof doesn't mean that it's not interesting. and doesn't mean that it's not important to talk about. It doesn't mean uh, it's an important piece of evidence. So I used to be very much a zealot online and anything that wasn't a randomized control trial, uh, like you're not allowed to talk about that because that's not like completely rigorous. It's not completely um, super perfectly well established. But then, as I became more of a scientist and started to, to appreciate more of the creative or hypothetical or plausible aspects of science, and realizing that many of the things that we have that are rock solid uh, only really cover a, a, a small minority of all that can possibly be known, so that there's a huge number of evidence gaps in which you do actually need. Uh, evidence that isn't completely solid, I started to appreciate a lot more people who did communicate things that were not necessarily, um, uh, that were just interesting, that were things that we should talk about, things that we should consider, things that should be a part of the conversation. And just because we don't have perfect evidence about it doesn't mean we can't talk about about it and think about it. And just because we don't have perfect evidence about it doesn't make it quote unquote misinformation. And that that sort of conversion really happened over the last few years, uh, 2020. Uh, and I think that, I think I owe a lot of that to to working as a basic scientist. So th- there are arguments to be made for for everything, as you pointed out earlier. There's arguments to be made for all sorts of different positions, and I think I be, I came to see some of the arguments that could be made for uh, weaker so-called weaker forms of evidence. And I'm not, and that and that kind of uh, does relate to some of this COVID stuff we could be talking about. But yeah, that that's one big way that I changed in the way that I started. I became more open-minded uh, publicly, especially over the last couple of years. You know, I, it's part of the fun of science to me, uh, Kevin, is that you um, uh, you get to have you get to generate hypotheses, right? You get to like think about you know how does the world work, and you can you can that the creativity is in that. Um, but yet, in in recent years, if you uh, like, in, what I what I found is that uh, it on on uh, online, if you if you engage in that. 
people will, will, will come after you. Now, in scientific circles, that's fine, right? Of course, hypotheses should generate um, a lot of discussion. Um, mm. And, uh, and that's, that's part of the fun of it. I, I've, yes. I've always enjoyed that. But then you do it in public, and all of a sudden, people are people are saying, "Oh, well, well, this guy's wrong." Ha ha ha. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's in science. Right. If you're not wrong most of the time, you're not being creative enough. Right. Because um, you know the, the the world is complicated. Um, but but it's um, but at the same time, we do like the, the norms of science and norms of public health may be different. Right. You're you're saying yes. something in public uh, that that may change how people behave. Um, that have the very direct effects on, on like, you know, if I, for instance, as a Stanford Medical School professor say, smoking is good for you. That, I mean, I've committed a sin, right? I've done something really wrong. Um, mm. I've, I've misled people about something where there's a pretty, pretty solid scientific evidence that, that, that that's not correct. Smoking is terrible for you, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's some, there's some, I mean, I've had to learn a lot about how to manage that, um, especially in contentious areas. And uh, but what I've seen is like I, there is during during the COVID wars, is that uh, a lot of times, the official organs, the CDC and other places, will misrepresent the scientific data, and often and often engage in with the public with more certainty than is warranted given yes. what the scientific data say. Yes, one hundred percent. And, and I see. So I'd love to hear how, like, that transition that you made. Like, now you've you got the PhD. You're, you're working with the PhD. You're learning to be a scientist. You also have some experience communicating with the public about complicated areas like in, in public health, nutrition. Um, COVID happens. Uh, you know, the, the 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 pandemic comes, and you switch over your 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 uh, your uh, advocacy, your, your your science explanations, and engagement with the public to that, as did many 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 people, right, including me. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me, let's, let's, what happened there? Like in 2020, what, what was your mindset? How did you, how did that evolve? Well, in 2020, I was still linked with some people. Uh, many, well, I was still very strongly linked with the nutrition community. But as you pointed out, a lot of people switched over. And some people, I knew some people who are, who are helping with uh, the World Health Organization, their mis anti-misinformation efforts. Um, I knew... I knew basically no people who were contrarians. Uh, all the people I knew were sort of on the side of, uh, if you're not supporting what the CDC says, if you're not supporting what you know FDA says, these organizations tend to do a good job. And if they make mistakes, they're mistakes that they will correct. Uh, therefore, if you're not supporting what these people say, you're, you're going against truth, right? You're going against truth. And not only are you going against truth, you're going against public health. So truth that's uh, relevant for uh, whether or not somebody's harmed. Like so, smoking. Smoking is good exactly, for you. Exactly. Exactly. So basically, the, the contrarians like you, Jay, I thought the contrarians like you and, and Rav and uh, Koldorf and uh, a lot of the people that we're not, that I'm all, now All us fringe epidemiologists. <laughs> all the fringe epidemiologists. Hey, super fringe I'll take, epidemiologists. I'll take the title of fringe epidemiologist despite any credentials. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to do so. I thought you guys were all motivated by something uh, besides the truth. So either, either there was something weird about your brains or um, you wanted fame or money. I didn't understand. So we all thought, of course, <laughs> we all thought that you guys needed to be shut down. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was once followed by all of the people who now uh, are not happy uh, with me today, I was I once retweeted them. They retweeted me, Jen Gunter, Ryan Marino, uh, all uh, what's that? Uh, Nichols, what's that guy's? Anyway, I I was they were all mutuals of mine, and we thought that all you guys are bad and we're the good guys. Um, I think it was over the course of and uh, to, around 2020 that was 100 percent that way. Over the course of 2021 and 2022, I started to become more interested in how do I uh, present information that's going to be helpful to people, not talk to my own little tiny circle of elites that are all going to pat me on the back whenever I say something mean about uh, someone like Jay or someone like Ivor Cummins or whatever, uh, but instead people who, uh, just average ordinary people who I should actually be reaching out to and connecting to because those are the people I want to help. I don't want to help uh, other people who are also quote unquote elites feel good. I don't want to make myself feel good. I'm here to try to make the public health better. 
So I wanted to, to say useful things that would allow me to connect more with ordinary people rather than going to abstruse theoretical debates about science and debunking the bad guys, et cetera, which, which most average ordinary people who are just trying to live their lives don't care about that much. So uh, I started making my own content instead of just basically ripping and criticizing what everybody else was saying, uh, who, who, quote, who was quote unquote bad and who I was sure was bad. I started to make my own content. And what I found very quickly as soon as I started being the least bit critical or the least bit insightful about what the literature says, even if I was reporting it completely honestly, completely transparently with all the correct caveats, uh, saying this person cited this, this isn't necessarily my position, but this is what the FDA says, or this is what this FDA paper says about X, Y, and Z thing. And uh, they're now doing experiments based on what this literature that they produced says. Uh, once I started doing that kind of thing and thinking about things intelligently, not just completely following guidelines, but trying to give my audience some additional content, some additional understanding of what was going on in the realm of science that weren't necessarily immediately on the guidelines, I started getting criticized uh, vigorously. So um, sometimes whenever that would happen, uh, I would start to become grossly misrepresented. Uh, people would impute to me some sorts like some weird beliefs about things that I didn't hold. If I, if I didn't fit in that exact perfect box saying the exact sorts of conclusions that they thought I should be saying, then, um, then I was going to get, uh, essentially like unfollowed, blocked, et cetera. And these by, were by all of the people who I'd once admired. And I thought they were all science-based. I was like, wait, what's going on? So a really good example of this is the FDA in 2000, I think 18 and 19, or maybe in 17 and 18, they, produced two papers looking at the concentrations of chemicals from chemical sunscreens in the blood after the application of the chemical sunscreens according to the current recommendation. So a certain amount per square centimeter, et cetera, and then left on for a few hours. And then they took the blood of people who had left the sunscreen on for a few hours and looked at the concentration of the chemicals, which had gone through the skin into the blood and looked at the concentrations of those chemicals in the blood. Uh, they found that the, the concentrations were way over what was called the threshold of concern or the level of level concern. concern. Um, somebody going to say something? No, go ahead. Okay. Okay. So, so um, I just reported this. The FDA has like their best scientists. They're doing really rigorous work. It's above the level of concern. They're doing further subsequent studies on this. In the meantime, uh, there are uh, mineral sunscreens that you can use. They're just as good. They work just as well. They don't do the same thing. They're, uh, they're, they're generally recognized as safe, whereas these other compounds are not. Um, you can, you can, t you can, it's probably safe to use these chemical sunscreens, right? It's probably safe. But uh, in the meantime, if you're not completely sure about it, you can use the mineral sunscreens. There's an evidence gap here that we need to acknowledge that actually exists. Well, that was unacceptable for me to say that because there's this whole group of sort of anti-natural anti living people. So they're against the sort of the anti-chemical ideologues. So what they do is they try to like, they think chemicals, they think modernity and all that stuff. Technology is great, which it is. It's great. But they, and they're trying to promote I mean, it. That, that's the thing, Kevin, right? So like, yes. okay, I don't, I don't know anything about the sunscreen issue. Yes, yes, yes. I, I haven't studied it, but like you're reporting a study. And you're reporting a study that has has some implications for what regular people might do in their life. And the, and the study is by credible sources. You've evaluated based on your expertise uh, reasonably, and you have your take on it. And mm. uh, and the conclusion you reach is, well, maybe maybe, maybe uh, this particular uh, product, even if it's a modern even if it's a modern chemical, doesn't make it ipso facto good. You still have to do research on it, and you have to still have to like demonstrate that it, that it, it achieves the goals you want in a safe way, and so on. Right? That's that's yep. part of the standard. You're doing that, and uh, you say that in public, and now all your friends turn on you because of that. Yes. Yep. It was crazy. It was crazy because, and then suddenly I'm a quack. Because, and it's like it was uh, that like that messed me up. I was like, wait, that was like that's traumatizing to me because this is my online group of people who 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 like I talk to on a regular basis, and they're like, why are you doing this, Kevin? This is, I'm like, I'm like, so I was speechless. Uh, I felt like. There was some, there was like a real disconnect between the way I was thinking, which is I wanted to just uh, tell people about science, right? Not necessarily about um, like dogmas, but about science. And that to me is exciting and fascinating and cool and, 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 and filled with endless joy, uh, learning these new things. 
And then they wanted me to shut up. And even though it actually may have health consequences, we don't know, but I was trying to be somebody who was helping people uh, squeeze a little bit of extra out of what we already know. And I felt like they were, you know, they, quote unquote, they were trying to stop. It just felt really weird. weird. So, I mean, like, I, like, let's say I, again, I had not studied the sunscreen issue at all, but suppose yeah. I, had, I had disagreed with you about some aspect of it. And I thought it was important enough to bring up. I probably... I mean, I, the, the the nature of the criticism I w- might have uh, levied is like, well, no, Kevin, you got this part of the interpretation of what the FDA is doing wrong. I, I don't. I, can you can you delve a little bit into this bias against um, against that kind of thinking in favor of like, well, if it's a chemical, therefore it's better than if it's if it's natural. I mean, that's that seems foreign. That's not that's not that's not scientific thinking, is it? I mean, like sci- scientific thinking would say, well, let's compare these two uh, approaches to sunscreen run a randomized trial or, or do, do a careful clinical study, whatever, like, and then say, and, and try to resolve that uncertainty. And then you can, before that, you can, you can say, well, we want, we need this because these sorts of results that are short of randomization are indicating a pointing in this direction. So we need to resolve yes. this uncertainty or something like that. That's the kind of way I would have approached that if yeah. I were, if I, again, I know nothing of this, issue, but if I were like thinking, okay, Kevin's not probably not right here. Let's, 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 let's think about this differently. But instead what you had is an attack on you simply yes. for leaving the, 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 um, the, the, the ranch, if you will, like for, for not, yeah. not being part of the crowd. Like that's just, that seems foreign to, to me just constitutionally and also foreign to me for as a, as, when I'm thinking like a scientist, which I try to do much of the time. hundred. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was a very strange thing because a lot of these people actually were scientists. They had PhDs actually. So that was the other thing that it's PhDs and there was people with MDs. I was like, whoa, like that, that really messed with me. Cause I was like, whoa, this is like, there's something weird about this. This is wrong. Cause to me, that's wrong. That's not the way we should be talking about science. We should. So, so um, yeah, it, it turned into personal attacks, misrepresentations, like, like snark, even from the people, like the main person, um, like this dismissive snark about, uh, I would, I would like cite one source and then I would like provide a caveat. I don't agree with everything this, this source says, but the, the lab values that they provide are simply uh, lab values that they're getting from some other party. And therefore you can trust these values. And then what they would do in response is say, well, well, you just cited the bad source. I'm like, I just told you I was going to, so <laughs> we had these weird, we had, we had this kind of weird stuff that, that happens in COVID all the time when people want to be really dishonest and in bad faith and they just want to win no matter what. They're not concerned with what the truth is. They're just trying to shut you up. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. Let's, 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 let's move forward. So you, uh, the first time I learned about you, Kevin, was this mm-hmm. Newsweek piece you wrote, this absolutely remarkable piece you wrote. Can you, can you describe your thinking that led into that and the aftermath of that piece? And, and, and maybe give the audience a little bit of, of, of background about what, what you wrote in that piece. Yeah, so over maybe the year subsequent of that sunscreen thing, I had several other incidents that were very similar to that. And I just started being like, what the heck? Like, I don't trust a lot of the people around me anymore. Like, I, I, I started to think there's this weird ideological group thing. And then um, starting maybe in October, maybe a little bit before in 2022, I started retweeting a lot of more critical stuff. Of course, I loved what Vinay Prasad did. I'd been following him the entire pandemic. I'd secretly been appreciating what he was doing despite being on the other side because I thought Vinay was like, he was, it's so interesting um, the way he explains the clinical trial literature, medical reversal. So I'd secretly been following him, secretly been appreciating it. And then I started retweeting him more. I started retweeting more COVID critics because I started thinking like, hey, maybe there's something that's interesting here. Maybe there's something that's, other perspectives I need to pay attention to because I started becoming more open to other perspectives by virtue of some of the experience I, I, I had been having. And I started trusting less uh, what other people around me were telling me was the quote, quote, science and started trying to think more for myself. So over the course of the latter half of 2020, I started doing that more. And then eventually, I think it was um, in December, this is whenever I made this vi- that big viral thread that's still pinned to my, uh, my, my Twitter account. Uh, in December, I, I like said, some, I think I retweeted or quote tweeted uh, Elon's, uh, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Uh, and then like, since all of my Twitter followers were like pro- progressive liberals, I got dogpiled for doing that. They like, 
They're like, oh, you just want more followers. You're like being a grifter. And I just was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done with this. So then I was like, I need to like, I need to talk to the kinds of people who were feeling the way that I was feeling at that moment, which is to say, I was feeling uh, like marginalized. I was feeling like I was being treated unfairly. I was feeling like people were not allowing me to have a different point of view than that what they were having. And at, and as my uh, reservations about COVID built up to that particular day, I said, you know what, I need to apologize because we were, we were wrong about COVID. Uh, we were wrong about a lot of things about COVID. At that point, I still wasn't 100% sure everything we were wrong about. Uh, I still don't have the details, but like I wanted to apologize to people who felt marginalized by the kinds of things that I did to them, the kinds of things I said to them, to the kinds of like um, harassing kinds of tweets, replies, et cetera, that I had been making for the last couple of years. I was wrong about that. And, and I owe it to people because I knew what it felt like at that moment. I owed it to people to try to make it up for, to them. Because in some ways, by doing that, I was making up to myself what, uh, what other people were doing to me. So, so I made this big viral tweet. Uh, within a couple of days, Bacha uh, uh, from, from Newsweek, I don't know if we, well, Bacha from Newsweek, the uh, deputy editor of, um, of the opinion column, she, she reached out to me. She said, let's do a, a, uh, an op-ed. So then I think, I think Jay at this point had, had sent me a couple uh, articles or reports. I think he sent me one report in particular where he went over a lot of some of the main things that had been done wrong during COVID. I read it. I studied it closely. I used it along with uh, Botcha, some of Botcha's work. And then I used my imagination, my experience, like everything that I had been experiencing and everything I'd been doing. And then I kind of synthesized all that together into one narrative that we published in Newsweek about how, um, about how I'd been wrong about COVID and how the scientific community had been wrong about COVID. Uh, I didn't know it would go like so viral. Everything I like did on this topic went super viral. Uh, well, but let's I, but explore I, that for a bit. Because it's yeah, very yeah. interesting that that um, your that piece went viral, right? That the I mean, when you say viral, what it means is it, it generated a tremendous amount of attention uh, from people who agreed with you and disagreed with you. Like so the question mm. is, uh, you know, wh why? Like, how, why? Why did you get that attention? And in fact, why are you now the subject of? I know you're subject to, to tremendous uh, calumny from from others who uh, were previously in your camp. Um, and I think I think a, there's a couple of reasons to explore there. One is that uh, I mean I th this is this you know when you have a movement that's not really rooted in truth, it's rooted in 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 a, in a kind of tribalism. Like they're they're you're you're criticizing data and they're giving you dogma, and then you say no to it, you move away from it, you're going to get grief from a lot of people. That, that are in that movement because they view you as a traitor. Mm -hmm. I think there's some element of that, uh, that, that led to this. The other thing is like your, the authenticity of what, of what you've said came through really clearly in that Newsweek piece. We didn't know each other then, but I read that piece and I was, I was struck by your, the reason you were, you were writing that piece is because you cared what was true. That was the primary reason you didn't, I mean, you didn't need to apologize to me or anyone else, frankly, but it, but it was, it was a. It was motivated by wanting to say, okay, what is true? What does the scientific data actually say about these incredibly important topics? That came across. And if if you're in a, if it's if the the world is about dogma to you about about tribe of this tribal belonging, even if you're name name yourself a scientist, you're gonna you're gonna have a really negative reaction to someone who has who writes a piece like what you wrote. Um, and you know you could just ignore it, but you but you really can't because what you wrote, Kevin, was a direct critique of this. The, I mean, I just just call it what it is. Like, like the faith of people who had signed on to the, all the lockdowns ideas. All, we call them Covidians. Um, you were criticizing a religious movement, mm. and, and and for the ways that they they marginalized and 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 harassed and mistreated other people who, and, and by the way, Jay, at that point, when I wrote that piece, I was really confused about what was true. I was actually, 
um, just trying to give a certain perspective on things that I thought was important and valid. At that point, I hadn't dug into the science as much as you guys have and as much as I have now. And I understand like, it, and, and, like it, there were several more transformations that occurred after that point. At that point, I was only concerned with, hey, there's this interesting, um, there's this interesting point of view that I think has a lot of validity to it. I can't see where it's wrong. I think it's true. And we've been mistreating other people who had that point of view. And there's these potential very serious consequences um, that, that, that came as a result of that. And I thought that we should really talk about it. And I wanted to champion um, and, and try to say, hey, wait a second. Uh, we should have a more of a discussion about this. And of course, I, I did that by, by in, a, in a kind of one-sided way, uh, presenting that particular point of view. But at that point, I genuinely was very confused. And, I, and that was like one of the most difficult parts of my life because I, wasn't, I didn't even know what was true. And I, am, and I had people in the COVIDian camp who were telling me my life was over. I had like very well-known scholars at, at Harvard, at, 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 at many different uh, places who were uh, very, very, indeed very concerned for me. And people, people they, they, they would state they were very concerned for me. And, um, and I mean, Kevin, and I, was, I was concerned for you when I saw that piece, not because what you said in it wasn't true. I mean, it, it, was, it was an act of bravery. It's just that I'd, I also had been on the other side of this, uh, this calumny. I'd like this, you know, in 2020, when I started writing uh, about COVID, it, for, for the first time in my life, it was really clear that it, this was not about the scientific things I was saying. It was about something else. And I had yeah. to decide, okay, am I going to, uh, am I, am I in this field because I want accolades, you know, lines on my CV or whatever, or am I in this field because I want to learn what's true and help the public with, uh, with, the, with that, with what, what I find and just be honest um, about what I'm say, seeing. And it's, it, it was really, it was really striking to see when I, when I read your piece, I was struck by like this, this, I, I, I just felt for you. I knew what you were going to, you were going to go through was this mm. tremendous, uh, uh, attack on your integrity and all this stuff. When all you were trying to do was grapple with scientific data and information in an honest way. And any, any honest person grappling will have some uncertainty, of course. I mean, and you're, you know, the, the science for it to work has to have room for grace when somebody yes. doesn't understand. 100%. Yes. You know? um, yes. When someone gets something wrong, it's not like you throw them out. They're just still interesting people. Yes. Um, I mean, I, so, so for instance, I, I think that I agree with you that a lot that, that like many scientists, who pushed like the lockdowns and all these other policies got things tremendously wrong, but I really still hope to learn from them because they're, they're very insightful people. Yeah. I mean, that, I think it has to be the right way you think about these kinds of discussions. And if that really the state, it, 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 we, we, as a scientific community got away from that. Well, yeah. So, so it is important. We learn from them, but they're, they're not in the, the they're not. So, so the problem is, is there are some very intelligent people on quote unquote, the other side and, and one person who I know, and I, you probably agree with me on this, uh, who does a really good job at this, Jeffrey Morris. Now, I may not agree with everything uh, Jeffrey Morris says. He's a pen professor. I may not agree with everything he says. But he, despite disagreeing like fundamentally with, with me on certain things, he is civil. He is transparent, open, and, and happy to engage about it. And I, I value that guy so much. No, I've learned a lot does, from him. I like, I really enjoy his engagement on Twitter and I, and, uh, you know, I've seen him change his mind. I've seen, I've changed my mind in response to things he's written. I, th I think he's a model scientist. But the problem is, is so much of the scientific community makes itself so freaking unpleasant that it's like, not even like you, like, I don't know, you, you may have less of a problem with this than me, but sometimes people are so unpleasant. I'm like, I'm like, you, you might be very smart. You might know a lot, but if you can't, like not make me feel miserable talking with you. I can't really learn anything from you because we're like, we're fighting about this when we should just be having a discussion. And the, the problem is, is as you're saying, there's, we've lost this concept of grace. We've lost, I would say, even say, this is why I became more interested in Christianity over the, of course, it's like such a weird transition that I made. And then people say it's grift. Oh, it's like, 
oh, you're, you're going to the right, so now you have to embrace Christianity to signal to everybody. No, it's like, that's not what it's about. It's like, whenever I have um, a position that somebody doesn't agree with, if they, or if somebody else, for, let's switch it, if somebody else has a position I disagree with, if I have this sense of compassion and that they're not bad because of what they believe, in fact, they're good no matter what, then whatever they say to me is not going to trigger or not going to cause me to want to jump on them, but it's going to ca- want to cause me to, to think about, to sympathize with, try to, to try to understand. And therefore we can have a scientific discussion because suddenly that's, that's kind of like, that's a really strong foundation for civility between us. And we've really lost in this society, the ability to think that way, your behavior, your, your beliefs, your, your, um, your outlook, your, your, your political, whatever is now determining your value as a human being. So if you have the wrong beliefs, you have no value as a human being. And that's a really sad and terrible thing to happen to, to our culture. It's, li- and, it's literally dehumanizing. Yes. I mean, and I think I, I view, my view of science is that it's, it's, it's a fundamentally human thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it is, as you, as you said earlier, Kevin, a source of, of wonder, a source of beauty, a source of great joy mm-hmm. to, to be able to grapple with these you know, critically important questions about the way the world works in this systematic way uh, that, that, that with, with tools that are so powerful that we actually can make progress. But it takes the work of many people mm-hmm. um, and, and, a, and, a, and a certain attitude toward a, a certain humility, if you will. Um, mm. And I agree with you, it's, it's especially during COVID, it's, it, 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 it seems to have gotten lost on a lot of, a lot of even prominent scientists. Yes. Can, can, can we go back in time? Mm. Rob, we, 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 you, uh, you, you, we, we worked on the, on the, uh, um, on this, uh, you, so you, let's go back to 2020 and it's striking, um, the, 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 how this evolved, the scientific community actually early on, it was actually mm. in, in favor of focus protection ideas, kind of like where it was in the great Barrington equation. If you go back to yes. like January, February, 2020, Many very prominent scientists were writing in places like the Washington Post and elsewhere uh, that we shouldn't panic, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't lock down. In fact, what we should do is we should take advantage of the fact that the, that we know who's the most vulnerable. It's older people to this disease, mm-hmm. and seek to protect them. Yes, they're, they're writing, "Don't disrupt the lives of children. Don't close schools." These are prominent mm-hmm. scientists who later would, in middle March 2020, switch their position. Yes. Um, so uh, it's it's striking. That is a striking thing. Like what I, I'm sure you saw that, Kevin, right? Because you were you were following closely. What was your what was your thinking along those lines? When you said, and I know you've been also writing about that recently. That that switch over. I, I in in 2020, I was so emotionally in the midst of everything. I was so honestly, I was so hysterical. Um, I probably was more uh, pro China, like well before. Uh, mid middle of March, I probably, as soon as I heard about China welding people into their apartments, I was like, yeah, we need to weld people into their apartments. I, I it, it was terrible, but, but I was a COVID, a hardcore zero COVID, zero COVID COVIDian before mid middle of March, 2020. Uh, and so it wasn't really on my radar. I was always thinking we need to, we need to lock down like China and like, we need to do what they're doing. In fact, I was thinking before Italy even locked down, I was like, Italy needs to lock down. They got to do it now. Um, so, so to me, I, I wasn't aware of that, but recently, this is yesterday, uh, somebody, uh, I don't know if this is his real name, but he goes by Stinson. I think Stinson Norwood on Twitter. I think that's a pseudonym. He showed me this document that was written by Greg Gonzalez, who's, who's like a hardcore COVIDian. He's at Yale. Uh, he has a long, long-term relationship with Fauci going back to the AIDS epidemic. He wrote this art, this uh, report or this this uh, letter to uh, President Pence or Vice President Pence, saying things that were very similar, as you pointed out, to what you guys ended up writing in the Great Barrington Declaration. I think it was in October later that year. The interesting thing is all these very moderate public health ideas that have gone back decades. If you go back to 2019. Um, you can see people having, or 2000, all the way from 2015 to 2019, there were several of these. There were these pandemic games where they would get together experts, people from government, uh, put them in a room and then have like a multi-day or a multi-week or a multi-month simulated pandemic that they would then try to manage. They were incredibly moderate 
in the way that they looked at things. They, they would have ferocious debates about whether or not they should have travel bans. It never even entered the vocabulary except for maybe one time in passing, I found one sentence in one of their published papers that, that alluded to national quarantines, but it was never discussed as if it was a serious policy position to have. And this is the consensus point of view, even in the case of things like smallpox pandemics, like there was this one simulation where they had terrorists who seeded smallpox all around the United States. Smallpox has this horrific CFR, much worse than COVID, right? And yet they, they were against lockdowns, even in that sort of circumstance. That was the reigning point of view all the way up till the beginning of March when Consalves wrote the paper, Rochelle Walensky was one of the signatories on, on that paper. She, they were talking about civil rights in that paper, trying to protect civil rights, trying to make sure that the needs of public health need to be counterbalanced with civil rights and that you can't do these, uh, these hard lockdowns because then you'll alienate people. Then suddenly, as you point out, suddenly in the middle of March, all of that like reverses. Everybody gets on the same page. Everybody starts to say, we have to do these lockdowns. We have to do these school closures, et cetera. And what I think happened is, and what this is my guess, I'm not sure. I think that beneath everything, there was a lot of hysteria and, and you can, you can, we can d discuss this because I think this is still a fascinating area. I'm just giving an opinion and I still have to refine these points of view, but I think that there was a, a lot of panic and hysteria sort of in the general population, partly because of what the media was doing um, and partly because of what was coming out of China and, in, and later in Italy. Once Italy locked down, people started thinking, okay, we can do this in the West. So there's already this, this, this tension, this panic, et cetera. Then suddenly uh, Italy legitimates or legitimizes the possibility of a Western lockdown. You can't do it uh, just because China does it because it's China. But once Italy does it, then we start to think, okay, all of our fears, all of the, these terrible things that we're, we're, we're thinking about COVID, we can now act on them in a way that we didn't think we could before, according to the previous set of ideas. So suddenly, and I think this is essentially an emotionally driven uh, response, suddenly we're now able to lock down. And then the lockdowns themselves, as Michael Singer points out, uh, the lockdowns themselves created even more fear, right? Because then you, you see things locking down. This must be really serious. So people who aren't as sort of uh, hysterical in, in this particular space, they start to, to jump on board. And then you have Burks and Fauci telling it, and those people are at the very top of the hierarchy. So everybody wants to think, well, what they're doing is right. That's the best explanation I can give of it. I don't know. I'm still a little bit confused on how that happened. It's, uh... I, th I think there's that, I think you are onto something. It's, uh, but I think the history goes back a little bit further. So if you if you um, if you go back and look at the debates over pandemic responses uh, during um, the, like the 2003 SARS uh, one uh, pandemic or, or or epidemic and then and uh, or if you look at uh, you know 2006 the the um, avian flu scare um, there's this like concerted uh, focus on what to do during the pandemic to, to prepare for future pandemics that 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 starts to move uh, pandemic planning away from the traditional pandemic management strategies, you know, which are, which are just, you know, basically focus protection, identify the most vulnerable people, move uh, resources, uh, develop ideas to, to protect, you know, like vaccines or, or tr treatments or, or whatnot to, to protect those vulnerable people. Them, uh, and don't panic society, don't disrupt society, because by doing so, you're going to cause more harm than good. That was the, that was the old pandemic plan. But in 2006, okay. there's this idea, well, well, maybe we can do better. Um, and there's a big fight inside the, 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 uh, the epidemiological community and, the, and, and inside the Bush administration over what the right thing to do is. Oh, and interesting. There's, and so, like, you know, there's this paper by uh, Don Henderson, who's the, the man okay. who, you know, so it's like probably most most responsible for eradicating smallpox, most important epidemiologist of the 20th century. He writes this paper saying, no, look, you shouldn't be locking down all of these like disruptions that would come out of the uh, out of such lockdown strategies is going to end up harming people's health more than and then you're going to do more harm than good uh, in these kind of situations in response to respiratory virus pandemics. Um, and, uh, but, but the others, the, but they're, but they're, you know, the CDC kind of compromises. They have like some pandemic plan, which is dependent on how severe a disease, a pandemic is like, or how severe a pathogen is. 
uh, very mm -hmm. severe pathogen. Maybe you might consider some restrictions. I mean, I don't. I'm not even sure school closures are, are in or extended school closures are in any of these plans. But like the, if it's a, it just depends on severity rather than the epidemiological characteristics of the disease in terms of who's most vulnerable. It's not depend okay. on risk assessment in terms of like you know uh, vulnerability necessarily. Um, uh, and you know that, that's I think basically where it left until. You know, 2009, President Obama comes in, and there's that uh, there's that swine flu pandemic. There's an attempt to try to push, uh, you know, severe lockdowns. I mean, Mexico actually, I they that. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it 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 sort of fizzles out because the uh, it, it it's really it comes clear after a few seroprevalence studies are done that this this uh, that that's that the swine flu you know uh, was actually quite much more widespread than people realized and so that meant the lethality was pretty low um even lower than some standard like like i think that what like the estimate is something like one in ten thousand uh oh. ifr um and so like that 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 fizzles so in 2020 there's this like big battle going on underneath uh oh, really? public notice in january December uh, to January, February, 2020, between the, 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 the folks who wanted to lock down and the folks who didn't. Oh, really? And, uh, That's interesting. And into this, there's the other Chinese response to the lock uh, to, to COVID, which is to lock down January, 2020, they locked down and it, uh, they claimed that it succeeded. They, they shut, shut in people. Um, as you said, like sometimes in their apartments, even to the point where yeah. you know, they, if there's a fire going on, they, they're not, the doors can't open. Oh gosh. Um, uh, and uh, but it looks like it works, right? So the UN sends a uh, in I think mid February 2020 a, a delegation to China, which includes Tony Fauci's deputy uh, Cliff Lane, and okay. he comes back and writes an email to, to Maria Van Kerkhove, of the an epidemiologist at the U, at the at World Health Organizations, where he says, "Look, uh, it looks like the, the the what China did worked, albeit at great cost." And he says, it, we, the, the whole world needs to decide, uh, needs to make a very difficult decision. In effect, saying, should we copy China? But it's going to take oh, more than just the people in this room. Um, and that's in mid-February 2020. Right around the time where people like um, the, some of these other very prominent epidemiologists you mentioned um, are, are writing op-eds in favor of the old plan, in favor of focus yeah. protection. Um, and I agree with you that the Italian lockdown was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. It's, it really surprised me that a Western country would choose to go in that direction. Um, uh, there's, I saw an interview with Neil Ferguson, you know, of the, of the famous Imperial College model, where he also says that he was surprised by the, the Italian lockdown. It, for him, it was it, it sent a signal that, uh, you know, maybe this was actually possible. The strategy he wanted, which is essentially close, close uh, society down so that uh, disease doesn't spread could actually happen in the west hmm. and uh and so that and you know the, the the folks who were responsible for the bush plans on pandemic plans they're they're in the background also trying to push really hard to get the lockdowns in place and it's, it's a huge success for them they, hmm. they they get the government of the united states the trump administration to lock down in march mid-march 2020 mm -hmm. um if you read De Deborah Burke's book, she views this yeah. as a huge coup, right? For her, oh yeah, I mean, we, you and I have talked about this. I think, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. She brags about it. She, she, she's like, I was so clever. I was so clever to pull these strings. I was like, she's like the puppet master in that book, in her own mind. She's, she's like consistently, methodically manipulating the Trump administration and manipulating, uh, well, yeah, manipulating the governors eventually to bring about the uh, March fifteenth. Fifteen days to slow the spread, and it's a remarkable, like, and she's so she's so open about it because she thinks it was such a coup. She doesn't realize that there's people who are who are reading it who are intensely critical. And I mean, it's a it's a strange book uh, for, for, from for my eyes. But <laughs> I, I, I've actually spoken with several governors about those kind of interactions that they had with Debbie Burks and others, um, and essentially it was a it was like a it was a fear-mongering campaign the governors were subject to you know charts and graphs suggesting mm -hmm. that if they didn't lock down millions of people would die within a very very short period of time of course we know mm -hmm. from for a fact that those models are, are were wrong sweden didn't lock down the models had implications for yes. what would happen in sweden that didn't didn't actually happen in the next couple of months mm -hmm. now, i'll tell you why i think why they were wrong the models do not fundamentally have built into them 
the, the fact that societies are unequal, that there are vast numbers of people for whom lockdowns are essentially uh, uh, insupportable just because of the, yes. the fact that they, that they are, that they, that, you know, they, they, they don't have a job that, that allows them to stay home and stay safe. I mean, it's not a, it's not actually a virtue to be able to stay home and stay safe. It's nice. I mean, if you're rich enough, I guess it's okay. Um, but it's not a virtue and it's not, it's not, it's also not a vice because you have a, you know, you have a family to take care of that you have to go out. Um, it's not it's not a vice that that uh, you that you have some need for human uh, for, for you know sort of uh, connection with with other people. None of that is a vice, and it's not a virtue to be able to. It's, uh, but I, I kept I kept seeing um, a lot of very privileged people make yes. a virtue out of their privilege during yes. the, the pandemic. Well, oh, they I didn't can know. Stay home safe. They didn't know any better though. They didn't know what the lives of people who are that live differently than them, that feel differently, that have different pressures than they do. They see everything in terms of their own point of view. And I don't think anybody explained to them like, Hey, wait a second. Like other people have like dramatically different pressures than you. And, and, and a dramatically different, in some cases, different assessment of risk. Uh, and, and, and they weren't even, they weren't able to see that they weren't exposed to that. So that, yeah, they had this weird, uh, insular sort of like autistic, uh, sense that anybody who, who was against lockdowns must be a bad person. Cause that's all that they knew from their own particular point. It was just a weird, uh, yeah, it was a weird thing that they did that. And, it, and because they were the ones making the decisions, the elites were the ones making the decisions. They made that decision on behalf of everybody else, uh, when everybody else didn't at all remotely feel the same way. So, yeah, Rob, I'd love to hear what you what, what you were thinking in 2020 around this time. I mean, I know you said it to me before that you were you weren't really paying that close attention to the scientific literature. But what was your what was your like observations? Well, I have a quick question for you. So so the people that were writing the op eds in favor of the more moderate focus protection strategy in February and early to, uh, in early March, were they aware of these these big debates going on beneath the surface? Were their op-eds a response, a public response to those debates, or were they uh, isolated from those debates? What do you think? Do you have an idea about that? I, 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 I think it varies with different people. I think some of them were very, very heavily invested in those debates going back a decade or more. Interesting. Yes, interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, yeah I'm sure Greg Gonsalves probably was, was super aware of what was going on, and probably many of those people who wrote, who, who signed that paper. So for me, in 2020... Uh, how was I think? I mean, no, I, was, I, I actually, I, so I got your, your, your point of view. I'd love to hear what Rob was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this, this is a great conversation and I'm uh, enjoying listening to you guys. I want to focus as much as possible on Jay and Kevin, because I feel like you guys really need to hash some of this stuff out. But uh, in terms of my perspective, I wasn't really following much of anything in 2020. I was focused mostly on black lives matter, which was the start of my journalistic career. Uh, fairly unexpectedly, <laughs> um, and I, I honestly, I just trusted the public health authorities in the way that I trust my dentist or my orthodontist. Um, although n now, increasingly so, um, when it comes to like my family doctor, there's just not as much trust, or th there's more skepticism, or a more holistic approach that I've taken, where I go beyond my family doctor, and that's been the product of figuring out complex mind-body problems and realizing that, you know, your family doctor often can give you Band-Aid solutions and not actually address the root cause of, of your various problems. But that's it. Oh, can, can, I, can I explore one thing you said, Rob, because I think it's really important. Yeah. So, like, like, there was this – so the sense that you got was that there was a consensus. Yeah. We have to lock down, which is – and that's just the standard normal thing. But isn't yeah. it striking? Like we, what we've been talking about has been there's, there was a, there was actually a very very sharp shift in the if if you will the public uh, public uh, perception of the consensus from essentially the Great Barrington Declaration to lockdown as the consensus almost overnight, right? And it, it was isn't that striking? I mean, how how fast the the public perception of a consensus can cha change just by when prominent scientific leaders say the consensus has changed, even when yeah. the facts haven't. Yeah, again, I, I had complete faith in public health, um, especially someone who's never done much research in this area. Um, I just thought that the people who have been entrusted with this power and this authority are going to keep us safe. Um, again, similar to the way that I trust my dentist and don't overly question uh, much of what's going on and just kind of trust that they know what they're doing. I trusted, you know, the epidemiologists and 
authorities and the public health apparatus. But then my awakening really started during the vaccine mandates. Um, And that's when Jay and I first spoke um, because I was starting to research whether getting the vaccine was the right choice for me, if there was a particularly high risk that needed to be mitigated with the vaccine and whether it was safe for me. And um, contrary to the Trudeau government, contrary to all the mandates here at the time in the summer of 2021, when I couldn't go to a gym, couldn't go to weddings, large gatherings, couldn't leave my country, couldn't go on a train, couldn't, couldn't go on an airplane for that matter. Um, I spoke to Jay and, and Jay, you really helped me understand that there's far more complexity on many of these topics. And actually, you know, given the incredibly low infection fatality rate for someone my age and given some of the unknowns at that time and a lot of the uh, concerns and suspicions about the myocarditis issue at the time that, you know, e- e- either way, there was it, w- it wasn't exactly clear um, what was in my best interest. And in fact, there was a lot to be concerned about potentially with the myocarditis stuff. And so right then, suddenly I was just, just struck that the, the government is actively coercing me into doing something mm. that is actually, it's quite uncertain and unclear and potentially mm. even harmful, depending on, you know, whatever the stats are, one in a thousand or one in 2000. Um, and so right then I started to question everything and started realizing that a lot of my prior beliefs and assumptions were actually faulty and there was actually more complexity on these issues and that's when i started covering this topic and i think jay and i next time we're going to talk about the uh, media suppression that i experienced afterwards when i wanted to write stories about this which editors were not very happy about when it came to vaccine side effects and mandates so, I mean, I, I, let's, I, I think that story is really interesting, Rav. Um, and it's 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 interesting to see how, like, you know, people's minds change in response to this illusion of consensus that's portrayed to to, to, to people. Um, yeah. At, at, uh, I, I, the, the, you know, the consequences of this are really they, they couldn't be greater because the policies we followed in response to that perception of an illusion of consensus, this perce- perceived consensus, were actually quite destructive to, to large numbers of people. Uh, I, I, I've, been, I've been reading this paper that my friend and uh, academic Kevin Bardosh sent me, which is a detailed review of the literature uh, to date on the collateral harms of these lockdown policies. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very striking, right? So, like, you see... Uh, the lockdowns happen and almost immediately you start getting uh you get some parts of the the scientific and political establishments that are responsible for paying attention to the lives of the poorest of the world in the world starting to to speak up i mean they they they, they issue reports there there doesn't get much press attention but they are they're issuing reports like the un issues report uh or the world food program inside the un issues report saying uh, in I think it was like April of 2020, saying that they predicted 130 million more people, additional people would face dire food insecurity, meaning they couldn't, they don't know when they're going to get their next meal and for, for days, uh, potentially starvation. 130 million people as a consequence of, uh, you know, really what they mean is the, the, the economic dislocations caused by the lockdown. The World Bank issues a report saying 100 million people are going to be thrown into dire poverty two dollars a day or less of income um and that actually that actually happens in real time india locks down in march of 2020 and uh half a billion people are sent back home to their villages even though they work in the big cities of india uh many of them lose their life savings overnight their life savings consists of you know coconuts they bought to sell that day they sell the coconuts to uh, you know, IT workers in Mumbai or wherever, and uh, the the the, uh, the the um, and then with that money they buy coconuts for the next day and they feed their family. Well, they lose their coconuts because there's no IT workers. They're forced to go back to their home villages. A thousand die in transit. People call this the the new trail of tears. Um, the day the lockdown is ordered in India. Um, you see, you see these reports of of of. Uh, 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 sort of catastrophic harms from the school closures. You know, it, it's bad enough in rich countries, but in poor countries, some of those school closures lasted two years. One report says that uh, that 
four and a half million Ugandan children after two years of no school, not Zoom school, but literally no school often, two and a, four and a half million Ugandan school children never come back from that to back to school. And many of them, like another UN report suggests, were sold into sexual slavery because their parents faced the choice between their kids starving and, and their kids being forced into child labor or, 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 or into early, early uh, you know, childhood marriage or something. Uh, I mean, so you have these reports coming out from the, the some of these these agencies responsible for looking at uh, at uh, uh, the the poor of the world and designing programs to help the poor. Eighty million children in Africa miss their measles shots because the uh, the programs like Gavi that are supposed to provide essential vaccinations are shifted over to prevention of COVID in a in a in a, on a continent where there really is this really deadly threat from measles in, that, that harms children. They shifted over the resources to, to, for a disease that doesn't really hurt children that much. Mm. Um, so you're seeing these estimates, these, these reports. I was, I was reading these reports in 2020 with absolute horror, and I was wondering why no one's paying attention to them. Instead, they're just everyone's focused on COVID when, in fact, there are all these other health harms to the poor of the world. Uh, these, and so I just, it was striking the power of the 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 that the um the the idea that the scientific community was only concerned about covid had on the public mind even when it, it was clear that that was not the case there were really a lot of members of the scientific community that were still concerned about these other other uh, uh these 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 other people who were so so you know so poor that they were going to harm by the, the lockdown policies we followed well so it's interesting because when you mention that the the first thing i think of is is ivor cummins and he would post a lot of stuff about this and I was in a DM group with, with a bunch of um, liberal academics who we would sort of like see his posts similar to what similar to what all DM groups do. We always like link the posts of the of the other people and like comment on them. We would comment on his posts a lot, uh, and they were often about exactly what you're talking about: um, people starving, uh, people dying in third world countries. And the feeling that I had at the time, and I'm very ashamed, and I'm still a little confused about how, about how, why I thought this way. But the the feeling, the the thought I had at the time is like he's just trying to come up with bullshit because he wants to uh, be like a contrarian and he wants to grift. And I just thought he was full of shit when he talked about this. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't imagine. It's like it's so embarrassing because it's like. It's like these were serious issues that he was talking about, and these are serious issues. I'm sure you were posting about it, and people would see your post about it, and they would say, "Oh, look, that, that must be grifter," or, or maybe you're posting about it later on. Like, it's just so weird how we had this mind virus that kept us from being being concerned because uh, we had this like good versus evil mentality in our society. If you're if you're pro lockdowns, if you're pro vaccines, if you're pro masking, etc., you're a good guy. If you're anti, you're a bad guy. And if you're a bad guy, you can ignore everything that person says. And you can, uh, and it's really not hard to become a bad guy. And so therefore, we had a way by making a society filled with people who are good and bad of basically saying anything that was critical of the policies uh, came from, uh, they were being evil by saying it. It's insane that we were able to do that. It's so crazy to me. And I can't believe that I participated in that. And I think that became a big part of our society. And that's something uh, that I want to understand. Like, how was I uh, able to become like that? It's just, it, it, it boggles the mind for me. I mean, you know, Kevin, I think the thing to me is, um, I, I guess, like we, there, we have to have in our health policy, our public health policies, especially international public health policy, some, some domestic echo of the effect that American and Western policy has on the rest of the world, right? So if we mm. adopt a policy that hurts vast numbers of poor people that live in poor countries, as we did with the lockdowns, well, why does that not enter American public health discussion? Yeah. I 100%. mean, normally, like once upon a time, I, I, had this, I had this very naive view that it automatically would because there were so many people in public health that think about those things. But it's really clear that when even when when you're in a time where people inside public health are acting 
in this sort of groupthink way that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, um, that, that they themselves, I think, are subject to the fear that no, 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 like you normally would from just because you have a pathogen that's new and that potentially could, could hurt you, that they, that they forget about their commitments to the poor of the world. And uh, it's like you lift up your, your, the drawbridge because uh, you're, you're living in this castle. Um, so it, what we do is tremendously classist, tremendously. Uh, like, you people sometimes talk about a colonial mindset. I mean, we, that, that's essentially what we did with these lockdowns. And it's been striking to me to see so many people on the American left um, embrace it when I, I would think normally that, that that would be the kind of thing that they would abhor. Um, not the left worldwide. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there are there are many people on the left around the world that this spoke up. Um, you know, people like Toby, Toby Green and um, at King's College and, and uh, Tom Fazzi, who wrote this fantastic book, The COVID Consensus. And there, there are there are many others. Um, but so much of the the, the 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 sort of like mainstream left in the United States and 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 and, uh, and elsewhere. I think they just forgot what they're what they really should be what they were about. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think what we have to do is we have to have some reforms in place in our public health decision making so that the lives of the poorest who don't live in the United States or don't live in the West are represented in some tangible way. Because we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be take, undertaking policies that harm so many poor people uh, simple, uh, without at least talking about it at least uh you know sort of having it enter our consciousness like we yeah. did during the well so that's why i'm excited about the possibility for maybe continuing to spread awareness about what happened uh we need to make sure this that our you know our stuff gets into the history books and we understand i'm not saying that's necessarily going to affect things but but we need if we understood like if people understand people of future generations understand the things that we're talking about, um, then maybe, maybe they'll have, they'll have a little bit more pause. Maybe they'll realize. And also if it's, if we explain to them the madness, right, the madness that that fear, um, it created, as you're pointing out, it created this sort of self-centeredness, right? We were really only concerned with ourselves. Uh, any other consideration is just like, well, you kind of dismiss it. If people understand that during a crisis that can happen. So I'm, what I'm saying is we also have to educate people. I'm not sure. I, it's probably, you're probably right. It's probably more put into place policies and checks and, and ways to shape behavior uh, according to a, a sort of legal or, or policy framework that, that sort of automatically goes into play whenever you have these kinds of crises that's probably uh going to be the most reliable way but man like we, we I, I definitely agree we have to have some way that this <laughs> that this doesn't happen again for sure <sighs> all right well I, that's all that i had on my agenda rob are you uh, are you looking at anything else no, no that was a great conversation i'm glad uh, jay and kevin uh you guys had a really great exchange there um, and I think just as I've enjoyed this, I'm sure people listening will take a lot from this conversation. Kevin, is there anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Yeah. Um, be, be nice to people who dis, who disagree with you, just to the listeners, be nice to people who disagree with you, even if, even if, even if they're COVIDians. Okay. So that's it. Great message. Love it. Love and compassion, extending charity to people, understanding their perspective and not, dehumanizing mm -hmm. for everyone Thank, thanks right. everyone so great to talk thank you yep thank thanks you for so being much. here kevin appreciate it thank you all right thank you all right